Hello, everyone, and welcome to what I hope is uh, some audio that you guys can hear. But welcome to the very first episode of Awitnukwish Talking. So, uh, Pittman, me, Jesse, Everson. So, hello, everybody. Um, I come from the villages of Fort Rupert as well as Comox, and I also come from the traditional territories of the Hausat. I come from the Hausat Nation as well as the Big Stone Cree Nation. So, I come from a few different nations. I personally grew up in the Comox Valley. Uh, primarily learning from my Kwagyur, as well as Pentlach and Shashluk roots. So, Wheatnukwe's talking is all about the environment, it's all about the land, and so Wheatnukwe's in Kwakula refers to the land, refers to our resources. Wheatnukwe's, on the other hand, refers to our territory, the land, and the water, and everything. I was going to use a Wheatnakiola, but I felt that a Wheatnakwis uh, was going to be a better fit. So, this is the first of many episodes. Now, today, I just wanted to talk about what, what is very relevant here in British Columbia, Canada. And something that I've found really relevant is the BC wildfires that are just covering the coast. So here I have pulled up a news article from uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company from CBC and the headline reads, uh, BC's wildfire crisis arrived decades earlier than experts forecasted. So what that title kind of says to me is that you know people have been have been just you know they've been guessing based off of however many years of wildfires in BC that something big was going to happen right and so of course of course we're going to continue to have more more wildfires and more issues. And so this photo is from Kelowna. Uh, earlier this summer um, within BC, wildfires started at a normal time, but then spread at an alarming rate. I believe it was last year that, I believe it was Lillooet. Was it Lillooet or Lytton? I think it was Lytton. There was a fire that raged through the town of Lytton and burnt most of it. it it's a very small town of bc but nonetheless is that the entire town was was burned down at a place due to a wildfire which might have been naturally caused might have been caused by humans uh very rarely is it caused by any animals and so if we look at the data here the area burned in bc during wildfire seasons is insane 
So you go back to 2003 where this data set starts as of September 10th. So today it is September 12th. So this is only as of a couple days ago from the BC Wildfire Service. So this is from the source. This is from the people that are out there fighting wildfires. This is from the people that are collecting this data. And so this season, so far, as of September 10th, whatever they determine as the start of their season, since then, there has been 22,557 square kilometers of area burned in BC. Uh, last year in 2022, there was only 1,349 square kilometers of area burned. That That is not a whole lot, especially in comparison. You can compare the two data sets. And it really isn't that substantial. So we go back to 2021, and now we're looking at we're looking at 8,693. The numbers don't lie, especially since they're from the PC Wildfire Service. It'd be a bit different if this information came from, say, um, a student researching BC wildfires over the past 20 years. Whereas now, this is the wildfire data. They're most accurate numbers. I'm guessing. So it states here that society has already been paying a huge cost for these climate change fueled fires. Um, we have, and that's, that's the main thing here is that this is climate change. This isn't entirely, you look at how the data flows up and down and it doesn't actually properly represent how wildfires would naturally happen is that it'd be lightning strikes. Well, lightning can strike at any time of the year. But here on the BC coast, we live in a temperate climate. So you live in a temperate climate and all of a sudden you actually should have more moisture in the air and it shouldn't be as dry. Whereas the last line on the graph is set to a maximum, the, the at least the last number that is represented on this graph along the y-axis is 20,000 square kilometers. And so this year is already well above that by 2,557 that's a lot of square kilometers you think about because a kilometer is a thousand meters and so a square kilometer is a kilometer by a kilometer so that's thousand meters by a thousand meters that's twenty thousand just squares just 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 squares that are within bc i it, it absolutely boggles my mind and so it's it continues to say the thing we can control in the short term is the vulnerability of the landscape so that comes back to how dry it has been during our summer today uh, fortunately enough it actually is raining and we're getting more moisture in our climate here uh, it's becoming more temperate 
it's September. It should be raining. Uh, once we get into October, it will probably rain every day, I hope. But right now, we need rain because it can rain for four or five days straight, but then it'll start flooding. Why? Because the ground's so dry and it's not able to keep up with absorbing all the water into the ground. Think about when you when you dump water in, you know, a pool. It stops and it holds the water because there's no way for the pool frame to absorb the water. It's typically made of brick or stone if it's an in-ground or if it's like built up, it's like a metal or plasticky sort of frame to the pool. None of that absorbs water like a towel or like dirt. And so it continues to say the sooner we do the sooner we do it the better. So here they're talking about the vulnerability that you know we need to reduce by transforming how BC's diverse landscape is managed. So we need to shift away from a timber focused approach and prioritize conifers over less flammable broadleaf trees. So if we focus on our resource management here within BC, we are going to do a better job at mitigating and minimizing the chance of a forest catching fire, where at the height of the summer in say July, you can't actually make it rain. Nobody can make it rain. Nobody can make it sunny. No one can make it snow, but it will rain at some point during the summer is the hope uh, here in Vancouver Island. It was very just dry. It was not, it, it wasn't, it was hot, but it was just dry. It wasn't super warm. Whereas there was within the past few summers, there was a summer where we hit three major heat waves and we were looking at 30 to 40 degrees Celsius every day where the coolest temperature of the day was like 21 degrees, which is bizarre because 21 degrees is probably the average summer temperature, whereas 30 is like hot for our temperate coastal climate where we have a lot of humidity and moisture, where over in, say, Alberta, it's more dry. There's not as much moisture because they're landlocked and separated from the ocean. So it's just beyond me that with forest fires covering more than 165,000 square kilometers across the country of Canada and 22,000 of those square kilometers are within just BC alone. That is way too much. That is way too much of a percentage to have within BC. That just doesn't seem realistic. Our little province of BC, mind you, it's not a little province, but we have more small, small towns because you go north, you go interior, you go 
Creston, Kelowna, Abbotsford, even uh, where I grew up, Comox, it's a smaller town. It's busy. There's a lot of people, but the landmass is smaller as opposed to, say, Vancouver. There's a lot of room, but there's also way more people due to it being a big, a big city. So per capita, population-wise, there's more people. I'm just doing some math right now. I'm trying to figure out the percentage of this season of for wildfires, how much... Uh, Okay, so after taking forever to do the math, 13% of Canadian wildfires were within BC. That's a lot. 13% might not be a big number when you're looking at how much you've done a task. Like, say you're 13% through writing a paper for school. It's not that much. But in terms of representation with the rest of the country and looking at wildfires, that's a lot because we have a lot more forest than most of the most of the country. So we almost I'm not entirely too sure, but we almost have we just have more more potential. We have more forest. We have taller forest, I should say. Uh, where the trees here, they grow tall as opposed to plentiful. Whereas like alder trees and deciduous trees with leaves, they can grow pretty plentiful over east, but they don't have as many, say, cedars or hemlocks or anything like that. Where over here, we have such a biodiversity of trees. Just look at that. Look at that smoke. I don't even. That is completely. Oh, we have an ad. <laughs> we have an ad, unfortunately. Um, but that's okay. So I'll just let the ad play. Um, but looking at this, it's just absolutely insane. It's absolutely insane. Like I don't, I don't work as a wildfire fighter, right? So, like this, this is just insane. That forest is so burnt. It's charred. That's dark, deep soil due to all the nitrates and stuff and carbon within the ash. But the forest should not be that dark in broad daylight. So apparently this fire here was a crown fire and what a crown fire is, is that it takes away the canopy, the tops of the trees first when it burns, I guess. And then uh, from there, it just, just 
just keeps going. So, like, um, pine beetles are also a factor within this this uptick and rising in our BC wildfires. Uh, pine beetle infestations are absolutely just so harsh for our environment. Um, they, <laughs> like most bugs, you think about ants when they get into your house, you don't know where they're coming from, but there's a lot of them. So the warming and the drying trend that began in mid 2000s coincided with the pine beetle outbreaks that left swaths of BC's forests dead, dry, brittle, and ripe for wildfires, says this article. So it like, how do you, how do you combat that? Well, you go back a hundred years and this wasn't an issue. Um, the climate was changing. It's always changing, but it wasn't changing to this degree is that it's significantly getting worse. And this is all in fact due to us as humans, many different factors. I won't name them off because there's too many, but we as humans have done a really poor job of taking care of our environment. So it's just bizarre. Wow, there's there's an account here from uh, from someone or, or they're explaining fire. They say, if a fire comes rolling in as a 30 meter wall of flames, there's not a whole lot you can do. You can dump a lot of water on it, but it's amounts of spitting on a campfire. It's like similar to just spitting on a campfire. That's not going to do a whole lot if it's a wall of 30 meters of flames. So it also says that um, focusing on uh, removal of broadleaf and hardwood trees, uh, sometimes using glyphosate. The main ingredient to herbicide roundup. Um, the predominant approach in BC is to replant coniferous trees, and the intention of that is to feed the forestry industry within BC in Canada. Uh, forestry is a big economical driver for Canada, where, from my understanding, a lot of our timber goes overseas to get milled and then it comes back for two, three times as much. That's world trade in a nutshell. And so look at all these little things that add up. I got these little little titles in front of me jumping out and it says ecologists say life will return to BC wildfire zone, but trees may never grow back. That title, that phrase sentence says a lot. I don't care who those ecologists are, but if they're being called ecologists, I know that they have qualification to talk about environment ecosystems particularly forests and trees is that there some sort of 
tree plant ecologist. And so a resident of North Shushwab, um, they were able to see the destruction that was brought by the Bush Creek East wildfire firsthand on September 6th of this month, so this year. So people have to take immediate action. Uh, climate projections give us forewarning of what's coming. But <laughs> we all know we, we don't have to forecast. We just look at the past few years. I mean, that's what forecasting is. It takes it takes the past data of something and then it projects it on an up or down trend or going up and down. Uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada does the same thing with uh, fishery estimates. So then there's another quote here that says, this summer will repeat in the future, not only in BC, but likely across Canada. Now, what does that mean for Canada? Does that mean we need to do a better job federally, nationally, across the country with taking care of our environment? That guy right there, Justin Trudeau, he's currently our prime minister. Now it says, prime minister promises infrastructure upgrades due to fires. What does that entail? Let's, uh, let's have a look. And prime minister, some of the local... Oh. article um <laughs> although this car looks very cool i'm not sponsored by acura warning have called for something very specific from the federal government they say that they rely on winning grants in order to get infrastructure funding for things like water sewers uh, roads for example in lake country some of them are single lane alternating and building more fire resilient homes uh they can't rely on winning grants to be able to ensure that they're ready for the climate change events that are inevitable. Will your government con commit to providing stable, consistent funding to these small communities? When we got elected in 2015, we made a commitment to invest in infrastructure in ways that uh, previous federal governments simply had not. And we stepped up massively on wastewater, on uh, investing in municipalities and building the kinds of infrastructures uh, that are necessary. We're seeing that as being even more important right now. An example that I, I gave to the mayors when we spoke this morning was what we've done uh, with public transit. We know that municipalities uh, plan transit over a 10-year timeline and yet aren't sure whether they're going to get money over 10 years, for example. We just brought in a $3 billion dedicated yearly permanent public transit funding to allow cities uh, and municipalities to plan for that. I think we need to start looking at that around emergencies. We certainly need to look at that around uh, infrastructure investments uh, so that cities can make the plans to continue to grow uh, in ways that we all need, not just our economy to grow, but our communities to grow. This is something uh, with which uh, we are fully seized and our Minister of Infrastructure, among others, will be uh, fully engaged with. Uh, and I look forward to continuing to work closely with provincial and municipal leaders uh, in a collaborative way uh, to respond to these challenges.
So what it really comes down to there is um, that <laughs> accountability. He talks about collaboration. Trudeau talks about what they're giving to the people that have been affected by these extreme weather conditions, wildfires. Uh, people have lost their homes. People have lost their own belongings. Some people have lost their lives, and yet the people who lead our country, such as Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, can't fully say we are going to definitely help you. And that that's a really sad reality for uh, politics. Politics has this very interesting way of going, okay, well, let's agree on this thing and then we'll do it. You do it, but how well do you do it? Whereas outside of the world of politics, you have a lot of people who are giving up their lives, their days, their time towards a greater cause than themselves. Any politician that's out there is out for themselves. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot of good people that are politicians as well. When you collaborate and you work together in different circles, you can make magic just happen. If politicians were more like-minded to each other, or more accurately, if every one of them was as open-minded as, say, a three-year-old and just wanted to absorb knowledge and was really good at absorbing knowledge and information like a sponge, I think our world would be in a better place. But we as adults, we as grown human beings cannot justify not having our own opinion. We can't justify things that we don't understand. If we don't understand it, it makes us uncomfortable. A lot of people within the modern world are still trying to figure out what um, what this whole reconciliation thing is, what this whole working together thing is. Um, and it is a difficult thing to try and understand where it really depends on who's involved. It's like who is involved in reconciliation, who's involved in, and to me, I mean, that word reconciliation doesn't really have a whole, whole lot of, a whole lot of meaning. Reconciliation in its basic definition is two groups or two people, two sides, different people, different groups, different things coming together to terms with something that has happened and basically either apologizing or reconciling something that had happened. So within Canada, Reconciliation is this buzzword that politicians use. Reconciliation is this word that Indigenous people use to try and um, make note of, of what we're doing as, as Indigenous people as well as uh, the world around us. I know a lot of people, myself, who believe in reconciliation. I also know a lot of people who really don't. 
I myself am very conflicted with the word reconciliation because it's just a word. Whereas the United excuse me, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, UNDRIP. So it affirms that Indigenous people are equal to all other peoples while recognizing the right of all people to be different, consider themselves to be respected as such. And it's recognizing the inherent rights of indigenous people, which are derived from their political, economic, social structures, and from their cultures, spiritual traditions, histories, philosophies, especially their right to their lands, territories, and resources. It acknowledges the charter of the United Nations, as well as a whole list of things here, which I, the Vienna Declaration, Program action, affirmation of the fundamental importance uh, to self-determine all peoples by the virtue. So the important note here is that this is a piece of the United Nations. So the United Nations are pretty well worldwide. Um, there's a handful of countries that are not part of the United Nations. Whereas uh, we, Canada, are. We as Canadians are involved with the United Nations. Uh, looking back on history, the Rwandan genocide, where people were getting... People were being killed and uh, over their own beliefs, I think. Don't quote me on that. I, I learned about the Rwandan genocide back in high school. But what I do remember is that the United Nations had sent peacekeeping troops to Rwanda. But they couldn't do anything because the United Nations is there to help with relief, is there to help with food and supplies, but they could not get involved within the warfare that was happening within Rwanda, within its own country. It was a civil war, and it was a genocide. And I remember watching a documentary on the Rwandan genocide, and this one Canadian troop who was of command, he was either a commander or an officer, he was an officer of sorts, and he was in a position of decision-making over there in Rwanda. And he discussed the fact that he couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything. They were sent over to Rwanda and told, hey, go help these people. And if your role is to be, say, a soldier, and you can't be a soldier when there are people who are dying, you're not a savior of those people. You are, you're just there. You're just that you're a foreign country. You're a foreign entity in another country. You're a Canadian in Rwanda, really. Like that's, you're an American in Rwanda. You're, if you can't do anything, what is your purpose? Whereas 
I walk into the store and I am shopping, I am a customer. That is my purpose. If I work somewhere or say I were to be a security guard, I have a purpose to protect whatever it is wherever I work, whether it's for a bank, for stores, for a person. You know, celebrities, they have their security guards. They have their security detail. Uh, a lot of our politicians, our prime ministers, our presidents, they have uh, what we refer to as secret service agents because that's what they are down in the States. Um, but they have their security detail because there's a lot of people who might want to, you know, say, make an attack on the Prime Minister of Canada or the President of the United States of America. Uh, look at World War One. That war was started by an assassination where very quickly countries that were allied with the attack nation um, banded together and then the ones that made the attack were like, oh, no, it couldn't have been us. But then they, everyone knew it was them. And their allies banded together. And that's what caused multiple countries to be at war with each other. The Second World War was a little different. <laughs> but that's a whole different rabbit hole to go down. My point being... Politics and, and personal views, uh, perspectives play a huge role in what we do as humans. So here is the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It's DREPA. Now this is the province of BC's website. Actually, at the top, you can see BC has declared a provincial state of emergency for the wildfire response. So you could find support evacuation information. That's very helpful. Thank you to the government of BC for that. Fortunately enough, the smoke hasn't been super bad here. And myself and my family in particular, uh, back home in Comox, my siblings and stuff, they have not been affected to the degree of having to evacuate. The smoke did get pretty bad partway through the summer, but it's been relatively okay here. Although on Vancouver Island within Strathcona Provincial Park, there is, there was, and probably still is a major fire in a provincial park. So whatever the case, our BC government passed DRIPA into law in November 2019. Now, because the province made this a law, they are now required to follow this law because it is a legislative, legislation, legislative piece. It is a act. Acts, regulations, laws. There's the criminal act, which most people fall under because you commit a crime, you're going to jail because, well, the cops say so, the RCMP said so, but also our government across the board in Canada has all agreed these are the things that you shouldn't do um, and you can be punished for it. So 
looking at environmental issues, we have the Fisheries Act, we have um, the Lands Act, we have a Heritage Conservation Act, we have a Wildlife, wildlife Act uh, that helps govern and um, gives legal um, processes to how we manage wildlife or how we manage how many fish someone can catch because there's limits. There's limits to how much someone can catch depending on the kind of fish or they can't fish at all because there's not enough fish. So there's four key areas of this legislation called DRIPA. So section three mandates the government to bring provincial law into alignment with this UN declaration. So it mandates, they have a mandate to make their, make our provincial laws within BC up to, uh, up to code <laughs> with uh, the United Nations declaration. Section four requires the province, province to develop and implement an action plan in consultation and cooperation with indigenous peoples to meet the objectives of the UN declaration. So that there's that collaboration piece that Justin Trudeau was talking about. Although in that news clip, he wasn't at all talking about DRIPA. Section five requires regular reporting to the legislature to monitor progress on the alignment of laws and implementation of the action plan, including tabling annual reports by June 30th of each year and section seven and eight allow for flexibility for the province to enter agreements with a broader range of indigenous governments to exercise statutes, statutes, statutory decision-making authority together for yeah. So whatever the case, I really struggled to say that. But what that says is <laughs> it gives them flexibility. I personally do not like how it's worded, but this is from their website. So I don't work for the government by any means. Um, but this is basically saying they're going to, and they have been collaborating with indigenous communities within the province, across the province. But it says a range of indigenous governments. What is an indigenous government to the province of BC? Well, a indigenous government would be a elected chief and council of a nation. Most of the time, it wouldn't be a hereditary leader or a head of a family or a traditional knowledge holder. Whereas an elected chief counselor or an elected council member can be knowledgeable of their culture or not. Because that's what the world and climate that we currently live in as indigenous people is we have community members in every community up and down the coast and across Canada who are still reconnecting to their roots, who are still learning about who they are due to, um, say, residential school, the Indian Act, 
potlatch band, the 60s scoop. All of these systems that worked against us as an as indigenous people to erase our culture. And to this day, there's still cultural erasure going on. We still have the government not understanding who we are. And when I say the government, it's a very broad and thinketed statement, but more specifically, the people who should be talking to indigenous communities or should be very considerate and understanding of the fact that from my understanding, there's about 61 indigenous communities across Canada that don't have clean drinking water, yet Canada holds a lot of the world's water. Within Canada, we have a lot of water. So I'm just going to look into how many indigenous communities across Canada um, don't have clean drinking water. So my number was a little high. Oh, wait, there's there's the number I remember. So um, as of November 2020, so this number is either more or less. Uh, we could find another article to look at. But as of November 2020, there are 41 First Nations communities in Canada without clean drinking water. What? 41 communities. How many people are within each of those communities? Think about it. I'm drinking water right here. Water is a basic need for any human being, no matter where they come from, no matter where they are. It's the filtration of the water that we all need. So at any given time, some 100 First Nations are under water advisories. 100 nations, 100 communities. To put that into perspective, think about how many towns are within BC? How many towns are within Canada? Take 100 of those cities, towns, communities. They don't have clean drinking water. These nations live within the same country as everyone else. At its base form, it does not matter that they are indigenous because it is a human right to have water, clean drinking water. You shouldn't get sick from the water you drink unless you go to a stream and don't filter it and you get beaver fever, that's on you. But this isn't on them. This is on our government. Why? Because our government 
provides the need, the necessity, sorry, our government provides the necessary things to have clean drinking water. Whereas here in the traditional territory of the Snanawas and Snanemo, there is a like water treatment of some sorts up one of the lakes. Same with back home in the Comox Valley. We have Comox Lake. There's a water treatment plant there. Our water is treated. Now there's some people who really don't like chemicals in their water and I totally get that. But I didn't grow up with a uh, natural spring water like some communities. Whereas I grew up with drinking water and we have humans across this country who do not have clean drinking water. So as of February, I take 2021 or 2020, um, there's 61 indigenous reserves that were under a long-term drinking water advisory, half of which remain unresolved after more than a decade. That's more than 10 years that they've had an advisory for their water because nobody wants to do anything. And actually, you look to the central right of the screen there and it says lack of clean drinking water in indigenous communities. And there's a website there to the indigenousfoundation.org. From that page, <laughs> they are talking about just as I was saying, water and sanitation is a basic human right recognized as such by the United Nations. Yet, dozens of indigenous communities across what is currently Canada do not have access to clean drinking water. But why? Why don't they have clean drinking water? In 2015, the Canadian government committed to end all of the long-term drinking water advisories in indigenous communities. By March of 2021, it is now currently 2023, and there's still communities across Canada who don't have clean drinking water. Yes, I understand that it was a different government. It was the Harper government that committed to that, regardless of political party. But it was a different government. It was a different prime minister. It, would, it was a different cabinet of people. But... It's a basic human right. So, however, there still are 51 long-term drinking water advisories in place with the government pushing back its deadline to end the advisories by 2026. So, because they can just do that, <laughs> they could just push the timeline because there's no actual project, you know, on the move. Whereas right now, um, they're actually repaving the highway just in front of our, uh, our house here. And there's a timeline for fall of 2023 for completion. Why? Because it's a highway that everyone uses and it's a project that the provincial government wanted to fix um, the highway. 
and that they wanted to do and they have to give themselves a timeline because there's only so much money that you could spend before you can no longer spend another million dollars to push it an extra month so i think this does come down to kind of like a money thing because they're not allocating resources to to communities with unsafe drinking water. <laughs> so despite Canada possessing the world's third largest freshwater reserves, many indigenous communities are not supplied with clean, safe drinking water. And it's a crisis that's been going on for decades. It just, it doesn't add up. Where, where does it say that we don't have enough water because we do we just don't have enough clean water in our country apparently so in the remote areas governments only give a certain amount of money when it comes to the issue now mind you this is just one source but if you understand a dam or water treatment at all if you understand boiling your water, if you've had a boil water advisory within your town, I grew up with those all the time back home because it would rain and then it would flood and then our water would become too turbid for our local government to justify not sending out a boil water advisory. Now, I did drink the water while the advisory was going on. It was primarily for uh, people who are at higher risk of getting ill, uh, elderly people, babies, mothers, um, like women bearing children, anyone with any sort of immune deficiency uh, is at risk, a way higher risk than myself. It's not to say that I couldn't get sick from turbid water. But I definitely could get sick from water out in the bush that hasn't been filtered because it's just water that has had dirt and everything from the forest in it, from every animal, fish thing that's out there. So it's not sanitary. Uh, contamination. Indigenous communities have their waterways and lands polluted by effluents typically from major corporations. So that's another issue is that this isn't just the government. This is also major corporations that at times have their seat at the table with the government or vice versa is that our government gets money from these bigger corporations and then they go, well, keep doing what you're doing because you must be good at it. Or there's no way that it can be a problem is the, the denial of of the climate crisis that is currently going on and it's sad because i'm only 21 years old and our generation is so screwed we have to deal with all of these issues and it's not getting much better it's just bizarre so how how can you help you <laughs> send a letter to the prime minister you volunteer to build infrastructure and provide safe drinking water. You raise awareness. Um, donate to Water First 
True North Aid, Water for People Canada. And you could also sign the following petitions um, that are on change.org. Uh, educate yourself and others on the severity of the issue. Educate yourself on Indigenous communities near you that are under water advisories to spread awareness in your community. Call government officials, demand change. It's just, it's just bizarre to me. And then we have the impact of wildfires on ind indigenous communities and consultation within law. So let's look at the impact of wildfires. So the impact is that um, individuals, BIPOC individuals are 50% more likely to experience natural disasters due to socioeconomic barriers. We as Indigenous people do not have the same opportunities as the world around us at times. If you live on reserve, there's only certain things that you can do. A lot of companies and, and banks and stuff, they don't like mortgaging houses on reserve because it's so different. Whereas everywhere off reserve, you can mortgage a house, no problem. It's just a matter of how much it costs. Displacement, relocation, and culture. This is a history that has been going on for hundreds of years with our country. I think it's just absolutely absurd that it would be anything like this. So the good that we as Indigenous people now have environmentally is we have a voice. The good that the world has and that youth have nowadays is having a voice. What we do with that voice is up to us. So here we have the Kamuwe Cultural Society. Now the Kamuwe Cultural Society works to promote, preserve, and advocate for indigenous issues. Now, I am actually a part of the Kamuwe Dancers and the Kamuwe Cultural Society, but I grew up as a little kid learning who I was as a Kwagyur, Penthach, Shafu person. So let's give this a watch. The Kumagwe Cultural Society was formed in 2007 with an idea to uh, promote, preserve, and advocate for the cultural practices of the Comox and Kwakwakwak peoples. My grandparents were actively involved here in the Comox Valley and their vision was to share our culture with the, the greater community here um, in order to foster a, a greater understanding between our people and peoples of the Comox Valley. The Kumagoi Cultural Society has been actively involved in the community on numerous projects, 
including Potlatch 6767, walking with our sisters and working with youth in the school district and with the Big House experience. We've been involved with National Indigenous Peoples Day, Living Legends, um, the Red Dress Awareness Campaign, and hundreds of different community engagement events. We've been actively involved with working with people throughout our community to help revitalize our culture. And in our cultural society um, has a dance group, the Kumagwe Dancers. And, and we, we work with youth and, and younger, older people, everybody to um, practice our culture. And a lot of times in this big house. It's always very rewarding to see um, people dance for the first time with our dance group and then learn um, their traditions and traditions of the Comox and Kwakwaka'wakw people and, and see them um, go from being a little kid all the way up to um, an adult. And so we've, we've had the ability and uh, fortunate to witness that numerous times. Part of our traditional teachings is to remain grounded in our teachings of the big house, our, our traditional dances, songs. And when we step outside of the big house, we bring those teachings with us into this greater world. And these are things that have been handed down to us from our ancestors. They're not things that have been given to us through the Indian Act. These are things that belong to, to us as, as Kwakwaka'wakw and Comox people. Being part of the Kumagwe Culture Society helps give us a place in this world. It, it helps guide us in the footpaths of our, of our ancestors. We always have the goal to help build a greater understanding of our, of our people and our cultures and our traditions. For more information, please visit kumagwe.ca. So right now we are on kumagwe.ca. Um, actually, that's me. I did a vignette with the Kumagwe Cultural Society as a youth. Uh, there was another few vignettes, one with our late mother, as well as um, Charles Willie, June Johnson, uh, this is also a really good video, which maybe uh, we could watch another time, but I'm currently coming towards the end of our episode, uh, our very first episode of A Weeknickly's Talking. I really do appreciate you all stopping by to have a listen to some of my thoughts, some of my um, perspectives, and to have a conversation about what it means to... Uh, live on this planet earth so do feel free to reach out to me at uh you know anytime if you have any questions about the show my instagram is pentlatch the kios on instagram there and uh, as well as here on youtube i'm also on youtube as uh the kios everson so feel free to, uh, you know, give that an ad. Um, and if you're watching it here on YouTube, uh, please leave a like, comment, and subscribe. Please let me know what you want to hear more about. 
if you have any suggestions on someone who I should interview or shoot me a message or an email about who you think would be a good fit for this show. I want to talk to anyone and everyone, primarily people who have been doing environmental works um, or advocacy or, you know, right along the lines of what Awinakwe's talking is about. So until next time, Hala Kasma Wisla, I will see you later.